step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome to The Lob, your home of in-depth coverage and analysis by these football times, a movement of journalism you can trust. Each week, we endeavour to bring you the very best coverage of the game, exploring stories from the past and present with analysis by expert guests from around the world. Find more of our award-winning content online and in print. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lob Podcast with these football times. My name is Stuart Horsfield and today we are starting a new series. Too often football is seen as tribalistic as fans display blinkered obsession for the football team and make outlandish claims by the terrorist chance that their team is by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. However, within these claims of blind faith and devout following lies eras and teams which crystallise why supporters love their team or are prepared to suffer the recurring heartache. On even rarer occasions, you find a fan of football who can see the beauty and excellence in a side who lies beyond the confines of their own club's history. My side is an in-depth discussion with a different guest each week about a side that made an internal oppression upon them either a club side over a single season or an international side at a major championships, discussing the key protagonists, the major incidents, the legacy, and much more. My side is the personal story of a love affair between a football fan and a side that defines their love of the beautiful game. And I'm delighted to say that my co-host for the whole of this series is my good friend and kindred spirit, Mr. Stephen Scragg. Stephen, how are you, sir? Oh, we're very well, thanks, Stu. Massively looking forward to this. You know, it's a really great topic, a brilliant, a brilliant concept that you've you've dreamed up, and I'm just massively happy to be along for the ride. Ah, no, no, well, like, like I, said, I think you and I just seem to go about looking looking for people that that'll either listen to us or that are prepared to talk to us um, about yeah, things that we're interested case, yeah. in. It is. It's just it's just a case of identifying yeah interesting people with interesting topic. It's great. Absolutely, brilliant. yeah. <laughs> No, it's hopefully, like I said, I think I think what we've kicked off with, and you know, fair play to you. You know, I think the side that we've kicked off with um, should appeal to every fan of football. I think. Oh, definitely. You know, they, they were so hard to, to, you know, impossible to dislike. You know, they were just brilliant to watch. You know, they were massively talented, ultimately flawed, but <laughs> never anything other than. A privilege to 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 witness what they were doing, to watch, you know, to 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 voyeur almost, because you know, not not our teams, but you know, when you see someone else, you know, another team playing with that kind of spirit and that just that joy for football, basically, that you know, the, the, apart from possibly Sunderland fans, there's, there's got to be no one out there that that begrudges <laughs> begrudges the style and and the. I don't know the position in people's affection of this 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 particular team and this particular vintage of this team. 
Brilliant. So um, today's guest then, and the, and the very first one, I'm, I'm pleased to say, he's taken the plunge and has been prepared to be um, guest number one in episode one. Um, regular contributor, uh, contributor, sorry, and writer for these football times, Mr. Aidan Williams. Aidan, how are you, sir? I'm very good, Stu. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Like Stephen, I just said, really, really looking forward to this, and even more grateful that you were prepared to bite the bullet and come on first. <laughs> For what is essentially something that Stephen and I don't even know it's going to work. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be part of it, so hopefully it'll be a really good chat. Um, and I'm looking forward to reliving the, the roller coaster ride that was uh, this uh, this era in my team's history. Uh, in particular, this, it might reopen a few old wounds, but uh, let's see how it goes. Well, we've got <laughs> tissues ready, don't worry. We're, we're, all, we're all safe. If it gets too emotional, you, you, you just let us know and we'll take over. So, episode one then. To start with, I am delighted to say that it is Kevin Keegan's Cavalier Newcastle United side from the 1995-1996 season. So, Aidan then, to begin with, um, I suppose just a little bit about yourself really, if we can just have a bit of, a bit of context as to how, how you arrived as a, as a Newcastle United fan. Well, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Newcastle resident. I've been uh, pretty much all my life, other than various excursions that I've lived in other places in, in the meantime. But uh, growing up, my formative years, I guess, were the 1990s, when, once I was able to start going regularly to football anyway, uh, starting in the early 90s with the Jim Smith era and then Ozzy Ardiles, and, and things weren't great, let's be honest. But uh, it all changed when a certain uh, Kevin Keegan came back to the club after having played there, of course, uh, in the early 80s. The whole thing completely changed. Uh, handily for me, that's when uh, I was able to go most often. Um, I was still at school at the point he, he came back to the club. Uh, quite regularly at that time. Initially, it was all fairly cheap, standing on the terraces and, and so on. And things spiralled from there as a, as a club came from the depths all the way up to nearly the very top. Um, it's I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, obviously, you know, Stephen and I chat all the time, and you know, we talk about how you know, sort of su supporting a club is is never a never a choice thing, is it? It's 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 something happens within your life that that sort of directs you towards towards a particular a particular club. Well, exactly, and in this city in particular, there is only the one show in town, really. Um, with, the, with the odd person at school who, who supported other teams, you know, Liverpool were fairly popular growing up in the 80s, I seem to recall. <laughs> and the odd, the odd person like Man United for some strange reason. And there was even one Sunderland fan in my school, which uh, didn't go well for him. Wow, he was a brave lad. <laughs> he was a brave lad. <laughs> but yeah, everybody else was Newcastle. I mean, that's the side of the city I lived in, just north of the city, meant that uh, that was clearly the only, the only place to go. And the only uh, the only team to support from the majority of people. Uh, obviously, when it came to being able to go to games, once you start to go with your mates and so on in the teenage years, there only was one place to go. Uh, obviously, the, the the support grows from there once you're able to start going. I, mean, I initially first went with my dad as a six-year-old. Uh, I recall a, a two-one victory over Bolton in Division Two in the early 80s. This was pre-Keegan's playing days. Um, but it was sporadic visits through through my, my childhood, really, until I was able to start going myself as a as an older teenager. You get to go more regularly, and then the love just deepens from there, doesn't it? 
it's yeah. It, it, I mean, St- Stephen's you know, Stephen will talk about being a Liverpool fan. I, I I suppose I could call myself a part-time Hull City fan. I suppose if anything, but I've never I, I've never been able to to sort of buy in or align myself solely and wholly with with a football club which sometimes I feel like I miss out on sometimes I feel that I can enjoy things that maybe fans who suffer recurring heartache maybe don't get to uh, don't get to enjoy um and I, and I think you know myself personally I think I think I miss out by not throwing all in with a club wholeheartedly I don't I don't know what you think about that Stephen it's a calling, isn't it? You know, and if that calling, you, you're in, you, you do the right thing. As far as I'm concerned, Stuart, if that, if that magnetic pull is not there, then you know, you you, you stay where you are. You know, you, you get to watch, you know, football from a not a dispassionate. You you're a passionate supporter, but you know, you're you're a lover of the game, and and in a way, you, I, I can I can admire that 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 concept of. You know, you don't have this cloud hanging over you, that, that can, and it is. It can be a cloud. You know, it can go from one extreme to the other. You can be euphoric, and you can be. You know, it, it can set the tone of your week. You know, if if you, if you let it, you know, it's all it's all to do with what you let it do to you. Um, and you'll go through various periods of your life where, you know, it is all or nothing. And and then other periods of your life where you can you can quantify that. You know, it, at the end of the day. You know the, the the sky will, you know, the sun will still rise. That's what I'm on. If you've you've won or lost, um, but no, I, I I think you, you know, you, you're unique, Stu, and you and you've got you've got the right perspective. <laughs> it, well, like I said, the only thing it does get me into trouble at home because obviously I watch any game. That's the only that's <laughs> the only problem with that. Um, so Aiden, then. Um, if you just want to in, sort of just just give us a taste or a flavour then of uh, of this side that that you want to talk about this side that that means so much so much to you. Essentially, for anyone who is a Newcastle fan and under the age of say seventy or older than twenty, perhaps this this is the the greatest side in in their living memory or in their in the recent history. I mean, they won't remember any more successful side than this one, even though it ultimately didn't quite achieve what it could have done and um, style that they played with the the players that came the, the way it all was so positive the whole city was was a buzz and this was largely down to the positivity instilled in everybody by by one man who was um in charge of it all but he he really did revolutionize not just the club but the city and the region and that it's it sounds an exaggeration to say that because you know at the end of the day it's it's only football but the influence it had over the vibe in the city at the time was was quite astonishing and it really did really did change the way people felt about all sorts of things it just made everything much more positive uh, the whole city was a buzz going out at night there you might bump into footballers rugby players and various others all brought together under the one sporting club banner that John Hall was trying to instill at the time. It was a it was a lively place and it was a lively time. And it's a time that hadn't been remotely reached in the decades prior to it. And it certainly hasn't been reached again since other than uh, a nice spell under Bobby Robson, which while it was still quite successful in terms of where they reached in Champions League games and all this it didn't quite have the panache of the Keegan era uh, 
unlikely that anything ever will again in Newcastle's history, and, and certainly in the current regime, unlikely they will ever hit similar heights again or even approach the level of success that almost came under Keegan. It really was a special time. It was a special side, uh, and it was just a delight to be at the right age to be able to watch it. <laughs> it, it, it's brilliant. When, when, when I was thinking about when I was thinking about this as a series and. And, and I was hoping that what it would do is, is bring out somebody's, people's passions and people, you know, where you could really get, a, you could feel sort of the love almost for the side. And, and you know, and just listening to you then, um, you know, you can, you know, you can hear it in your voice. Um, j- just one thing before, before I move on, it's something that I've not thought about actually until you mentioned it. And I suppose with Newcastle being a, being a one, a one club city, and it is a bit, you know, it is a big city as well. Is the city's, I suppose, well-being, if you like, for want of a better word, is the well-being very much tied up within the football club? It, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but yes. And partly it's to do with, as you say, a one-club city. Um, the fact that historically it's been a central part of many people's lives in the city. Partly that the stadium geographically is right in the city centre, and that's quite unusual, um, especially now with newer stadiums being built out of town and so on. But even, even say, the likes of Anfield, Goodison and so on, while they're within the city itself and have been in, in that position for years, they're not right in the city centre, smack no, bang in the middle of everything. Whereas St James's Park is, it, it dominates the skyline. It sits above pretty much everything as well. You can see it for miles around. And and, uh, you can see it for absolute miles. It looms from the distance. You know, exactly, yeah. If you're, you're, you're travelling to St James Park as a visiting supporter, you know, you, you can see it from, from on the landscape from a great a great distance. You, can, you, can't, you can't not find it. And anyone who's foolish, foolish enough to be out shopping on a day when there's a game on, uh, just in the centre of town, can hear every single roar, every single reaction to what's going on on the field very very clearly very loudly it's it's uh yeah it, it just completely dominates the environment and as a result it completely dominates the, the feelings in the city as you say it, it really does and it, it sounds ridiculous because it's just a sport really it's you know people get too uptight about it at times and as, as you say it, it's easier to take or leave wins and losses since we've got so used to it. The, the latter in, in many cases and the lack of ambition of the, the current regime at the club certainly has caused interest to wane far more significantly than it than it was in the levels it was at during the Keegan time but it still does dominate everyone's thoughts and feelings to to a fair extent it's great like I say it, it, it was purely as you, as you were talking about then you know being a being a one being a one city club um, it's not really anything I've, I've sort of thought about before. Um, Stephen, obviously, before we before we start to get into the details then of this particular season, um, they were pretty much everybody's favourite second team, weren't they? Particularly this season that we're talking yeah, about. Oh, oh, they were. I mean, I mean that that Newcastle side they 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 went from kind of the pits of despair to you know being being the real deal in a very short space of time. Um, when Kevin Keegan walked into the club, and it was, I think people don't realise just how much of a shot that was at the time when he, he walked in as manager to try and save them from relegation to the third division, 91 92, I think it was. And um, yeah, he, he'd shown no intention, he'd shown no signs of wanting to manage your career. He'd walked away as a player, and he, I mean, flown away as a player 
94 that helicopter that <laughs> took him off the pitch. Uh, it's, it's there in my mind's eye. You know, I can still remember the the footage of it. You know, high fiving everyone on the Gallagher end, and then hopping into the helicopter to be flown off. And uh, he went off to to live in Spain, play golf, and he'd tip up on uh, as a television pundit here and there. But he'd never professed any inclination to 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 take on a managerial career. But it was, it was the second time that he shocked everyone by coming to Newcastle. I mean, when he came as a player, it was exactly the same. He was the England captain. He was 31 yeah. years old, hardly uh, over the hill, really. Um, but he dropped down a division to come to Newcastle as a player at a club that really was doing absolutely nothing. And for us, as Newcastle fans, basically you could say lightning struck twice that he came and galvanised the club. Once as a player, once as a manager, completely changed everything around merely by his presence, his positivity, his enthusiasm. But it's funny when you you talk about Mind's Eye, and I can remember, I I think he won 1 0 on his debut, didn't he? And he scored. Um, Keegan that's what I can remember I can, rem- I can remember that goal the celebrations the, the everything the everything about that, that debut absolutely yes I mean, if you're going to make a good first impression that's the way <laughs> to do it <laughs> um, so so formative years you know Steve, Stephen's kind of alluded to them there I mean you know it's not like they've been bereft of, of quality players you know we I suppose, you know, Waddle, Beardsley, Gascoigne, all, you know, sort of relatively close to that era, relatively close to that time. It's not as if they were, they were starved of talent, you know, leading up to this. But in terms of the, the build-up to this 95-96 this, um, season, what, what was actually going on, you know, within the club? Well, I mean, to give the whole era some context, you've got to, you do have to understand just where it had come from. So it was a club stuck in a, a rut or perhaps worse than a, a sinkhole or something like that. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was run on a shoestring and had been for some time and it's essentially fallen into, into neglect. Um, it, sort of eight years or so on from Egan departing in that helicopter amidst a nice promotion party. Uh, they'd been relegated from the top flight in 89. Not really made much of a mark on the top division when they were in it. Uh, sank without trace a little bit. A, f- a little flirt with... Uh, promotion straight back, which ended in a playoff defeat to Sunderland of all teams. And, and after then, they, they kind of uh, just dropped lower and lower. They were barely clinging on to, to any semblance of comp- competitiveness, really, at that time. And just four years prior to the brush with the league title, Newcastle, now under Ozzy Ardiles, were basically playing it as a team filled with in, Ill, uh, inexperienced, ill-equipped youth players, really, just a smattering of experience, the likes of Mickey Quinn, uh, uh, Gavin Peacock and so on that were slightly more experienced but there was an awful lot of very young youth players simply because the club didn't invest in anything they didn't invest in the playing side they didn't invest in their own facilities the stadium was falling apart I mean one of the first things Keegan did on arrival was fumigate the training ground uh, and give it a lick of paint um, it, it was essentially everything was falling apart and no wonder the playing side didn't really too much uh, in terms of, of progress because there was little ambition at any level of the club. So they were, as you, you mentioned earlier, they were on the cusp of relegation to the third tier uh, when Keegan came in, which was in early 1992, uh, partway through that season or towards the, the latter third, I guess, of that season. 
Um, that would have been the first time in Newcastle's history that it sunk that low. And the general perception was that if they did drop down, that would more or less see the end of the club. It would go under. Um, nobody could really see how the finances would, would ever recover or the club would recover in, in a way to sort of carry on in, its, in, in that form. So the, the turnaround really was quite astonishing to think just four years later they could and should have perhaps won the, the top league. I mean, when, when Keegan came in, as we mentioned, he rejuvenated the club, the city, the region. Uh, his, his very first match in charge in, in Division 2 was against Bristol City. Uh, it was a game I, I was lucky enough to be at with a, a few school pals. Uh, the atmosphere instantly was far more positive. Uh, everything had changed merely by his arrival, as we say, the, the, the energy he could bring to the place just suddenly transformed everything. I mean, at this point, they hadn't signed any new players. He hadn't really changed anything. Uh, the, the team was still the same. Just suddenly, everything was different. It, it was The whole mood was positive. The atmosphere was positive. And of course, they swatted Bristol City aside and, and suddenly things were off and running. But it didn't actually carry on quite so easily as, as that remaining of the, of the uh, 92 season progressed because... Towards the end, they managed to lose five games in a row, uh, leaving themselves in firmly in the relegation zone behind the likes of Oxford and Plymouth, giants of the game like that, uh, who were keeping Newcastle in the relegation places. And to the point where the, the final home game, which was the penultimate match of the season, um, about four or five minutes from the end, still at nil-nil, Newcastle were firmly stuck in the relegation zone. And with only Leicester to play after that, who were chasing promotion at the time, uh, and that would have been an away game. Things really were bleak. Uh, they were on the brink of, of disappearing completely. Um, and this is when uh, one of the, the heroes of the story of the Keegan era stepped up with David Kelly, who is uh, forever a legend in Newcastle eyes, scoring late on in that Portsmouth game, again at the Gallagate end, perfect place to do it, uh, to, to, uh, to kick-start the celebrations. Uh, Send the stadium into absolute chaos, actually, <laughs> <laughs> and, and grab a win there, which at the time it didn't seal survival. Uh, as it transpired, it would have been enough at that point had Newcastle then lost the following week at Leicester. And as it turned out, they won that one as well and, and kicked on from there. Without those fine lines and those fine margins in that first season, none of what followed would have occurred at all. Uh, I mean, there was there was an incident where Keegan fell fell out with Sir John Hall, and he he walked away at one point during and, in that running. During, during that running, he got into his car and actually drove away. He, he, he to all intents and purposes resigned, and uh, Terry McDermott talked him back to you know, to go and finish at least the job of, of keeping them up or you know to keep them to the end of the season. Right, and essentially, initially, he just talked him to staying for the next game, win that, and then they left again. Uh, broken promises from the board, really, which would be a recurring theme over a couple of the seasons he was, he was around. But it was, it was one of the things that always stuck in my mind, that that, uh, that incident where he, you know, he nearly, very nearly went. It's um, it, it's fun, you know, listening listen to your talk, Aidan, and, and I suppose, Stephen, you're probably almost the best qualified for this, but you can almost hear within Aidan's the way he describes the you know the arrival of Keegan and that effect, it, it it kind of reminds me a little bit of Shankly at Liverpool. I mean, you know that almost Messiah-like figure, you know that, and obviously Keegan played under Shankly, and 
you know, at Liverpool. So, I mean, I'm not saying he would try to be like him. You, you, know, you can't change who you are and your personality. But it certainly seems like the impact that Shankly had in in Liverpool in the city of Liverpool and on Liverpool Football Club is very similar to the one that Keegan had um, as a manager coming back there. Oh, undoubtedly. You know, even down to kind of like Aidan saying how, uh, you know, one of the first things he did was fumigate the dressing room and, okay. and get a lick of paint. You know, Shankly, one of Shankly's famous quotes and walking into to Liverpool was the state of, of Anfield as a football ground at the time and the facilities, no, no, no hot running water or anything like that. And he, and he described it as kind of like the biggest toilet in Liverpool because um, it was in such a state of disrepair. And, uh, and, and he rebuilt the club you know, in a in a in an actual structural way, as as much as you know, on on a footballing scale. And Keegan did the same type of thing with Newcastle. You know, he, he brought that enthusiasm to them, but it was also that sense of pride. You know, you, you can't do great things if you don't have that sense of pride in yourself. And uh, and it doesn't surprise. I'd, I'd never heard the story that he'd done that, but it makes complete a lot of sense. Yeah, it's funny. It was it was that bit that the lick of paint that made me think. You know, think yeah, that's I can imagine, almost like a throwback to to, to Shankly. Um, yeah, because it is. It's exactly what Shankly Shankly did. No, Keegan wouldn't have been part of that. No, but, but he he would have known the legend of yeah. it. He'd have heard the stories of it, and uh, and yeah, you know, he he'd, he'd have taken some of the the. The, the socialism of, of Shankly, Shankly's socialism was, you know, having pride in your community and, and and acting as one and pulling together as one. He wasn't a political, you know, uh, individual, but, you know, his form of socialism was that, you know, you are a community and you pull together and you make everything around you the best it can be. And and Keegan will have, will, will have picked up on that. The next thing you're talking about to the community, that's, that's something that Keegan had all along. I mean, in, in part, he's... As, as, even though he's from Yorkshire, of course he's from Doncaster. But his family, large parts of his family, are from the northeast. He's always had that connection to Newcastle. His dad was from County Durham, a minor from County Durham, and also all of that side of his family were all Newcastle fans. As a child, he'd been brought up on stories of Jackie Milburn and Huey Gallagher and and various other players from those eras when when Newcastle were very successful, of course. Um, and so he, he talked himself about the fact that he was always going to come to Newcastle in his own mind. He'd always had that connection. He said it was in his genes. It was just a case of when. And obviously, when he came in 82 as a player, that's when he, he felt the timing was right. So as much as it was a huge shock, of course, for him to come back as a manager, having played golf for eight years and had very little involvement in football whatsoever, the fact that it was to Newcastle probably makes it less of a shock, uh, certainly to those with the connection that, that we're talking about there in Newcastle, oh, no, the, yeah, completely. The no, think, I, I, I don't think he'd have done it for another club. No, you know, exactly. It, yeah, I don't think he even said, you know, he even made sounds of that 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 ilk that you know it could only be Newcastle that he would go and do this for. But that was the thing; he, he had no intention of being a manager. He had no, you know, he showed no inclination for it. He was happy with what he was doing. You know, he he was living out in Marbella playing golf most days and then jetting back into England for the occasional stint in a television studio, uh, watching football matches you know, on ITV or whatever. And, uh, yeah, that, that was the shock of it, that the fact that Keegan had, had actually you know, taken that type of that role on, but the fact that it was Newcastle made, made perfect sense. It, I mean, obviously, 
you know, you, you, talk, you, know, you, you mentioned it about the, you know, the sort of the flirtation with the third division and, you know, the, the struggle almost going down to the last, you know, the last couple of games of the season. But obviously, you know, promotion comes. You know, and, and they're into the Premier League, and 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 Keegan and Newcastle seem to seem to fit quite well. You know, sort of in the in the first couple of seasons before we reach the the, the, the pinnacle season, if you like, um, they seem to settle in quite well to Premier League football. That's right. I mean, the first season in the Premier League, uh, they finished third, and this is where they they got the the, the label, the entertainers during that season with with the style of play. Peter Beardsley, of course, had arrived uh, in the summer after promotion had been secured. Um, but even prior to that, the, the squad had been enhanced just the summer after the survival in 1992. Um, it had completely transformed over that summer. Again, Keegan nearly disappeared because his initial contract, as with McDermott, had just been for that remaining part of the initial season. Once uh, survival was secured, again, negotiations carried on to, to try and make him stay but uh, that nearly resulted in disappearing again uh, but thankfully didn't but yes they hit the ground running both in that promotion season and in the Premier League once they reached it the following year finishing third as I say and then the next year it was um, UEFA Cup Adventures which obviously was the first time in, in quite some time but uh, it was quite a thrill uh, to watch I remember going to see them play uh, Antwerp in the first round of the UEFA Cup there uh, a nice thumping win at home and then 5-0 uh, victory over in Antwerp with Robert Lee scoring a hat-trick at trigger headers, I think it might have been. Uh, but it, it was suddenly a great adventure and everything was exciting. Um, that second season back in the Premier League didn't go quite as well in terms of the finish. They, they finished sixth the following year, just missing out on a place in Europe. But uh, this is what... Keegan certainly, looking back, saw as setting the club up perfectly for the, the full-on assault the following year. Um, the squad just kept getting better and better. As each new player came in, they were, they were a step up from whoever it was they were replacing. Every, every player that came in was, was raising the bar. It, was, it wasn't a case of uh, somebody getting moved on to be replaced with, with similar or, or, uh, or in some cases, not so good as, as definitely has happened over the years since. At the time, every new player was a step up. Everyone raised the bar. Some, some of the players simply couldn't cope with the, the higher level that was that was now being played, and uh, gradually withdrew from things and ended up moving on elsewhere. But the, definitely, the the, uh, the side kicked on and, and enjoyed life in the Premier League very well from from the off. Um, it- it, yeah, I mean it's it, it's funny, isn't it, Stephen? You, you, you sort of you almost think people, people become so wrapped up in you know in this in this ninety five ninety six season, you actually forget a little bit of the consistency within the Premier League that actually sort of preceded it, don't you? Yeah, there, there were a, there was a, a work in, in in motion type of fact. I mean, they there was like a light switch in in the summer of ninety two. They'd had that struggle against relegation. You know, even under Keegan, they've been, you know, uh, ups and downs, and and they'd had that five-game span where they didn't pick a win. They looked like they'd picked up, then they dipped out, down again. Then they they rallied at the very end, um, and then there was none of that. You know, the, the following season they just hit the floor running, uh, and it was the first season of the Premier League. So I think I think a lot of the games were shown live around the regions on ITV because ITV had lost the contract they, they, they missed out on the contract for the Premier League games and 
a lot of second-tier games are shown live across from region to region. And uh, I seem to remember them being on most weekends, one way or another. And um, they just played a lot of brilliant, entertaining football. And and there was a magnetic draw to, to, to see what they were doing. You know, you sport a different club, but there was this club that was just... They were just a fascinating story playing... Know, some some great football and the Keegan effect. It was you know, this 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 enthusiasm that you, you just couldn't you know you couldn't shake, and, and everyone was interested in what they were doing. And of course, they got to the Premier League, and, and then the master stroke of bringing Peter Beardsley back, um, which was similar to to Keegan coming in as a player. You know, to to keep that bubbling enthusiasm going, then to be so so you know, to take to, to Premier League football like a duck to water to finish third the highest they'd finished in the top flight for generations and, uh, and I think people really expected them to challenge for the title in 94-95 and they did very very well in the first half of the season but trailed off so there had been this this slow build up to them and uh, the qualification to Europe and, and, and all of that I, I think there, there was a you know, eventually, an, an expectancy about Newcastle. You know, they they proved that they weren't a flash in the pan. It wasn't a one-season issue. So by the time they dominated the first division, and then gone into the Premier League and had two very consistent seasons, suddenly they, they were the real deal. People really sat up and took notice, and the caliber of the players that they were attracting and absorbing was was escalating. It, it's very. No, sorry, go on. Uh, what Steve's saying there about the significance of Beardsley returning, the the wider significance is that throughout the 80s, you mentioned earlier the likes of Chris Waddle, Beardsley himself, and, and Gascoigne, of course, all local talents who, who were right, in those era probably carrying the side to some extent, all moved on because the club... Yeah, but that's, it, 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 broke, it broke a spell about Newcastle, really, because they exactly. in the 80s they'd been there and, and everyone saw them as a selling club. That you know they, they, yep. they would they would get this star player, build them up to a certain extent, and then it would be sold. And and it happened over and over again. It was Waddle, then it was Beardsley, then it was Gascoigne, and uh, even but even before that relegation, it was an odd one because the, the season that they went down eighty eight eighty nine, they actually spent more money than they had ever. I think they had a, they had a huge transfer splurge, and most clubs did because in the summer of eighty eight was the year that ITV bought the contract, the last contract of the old First Division, the old Football League, and, and it was the biggest TV deal. Yeah, it seems small peanuts now. It was about £44 million or something like that. But for the era, it put a lot of money comparatively in, in each club's pocket. And if you can have a look and see that, that most First Division clubs of substance spent quite big in the summer of 1988, now, uh, I know as, as a Liverpool concept, we, we went and re-signed Ian Rush a year after him leaving for nearly £3 million. Everton went out and signed like Tony Cotty for £2 million from West Ham, made other purchases as well. I think Manchester, that was some... Manchester United took Mark Hughes back. Um, Spurs spent money on Paul Gascoigne and, and Paul Stewart. Everyone had money in the pocket. And Newcastle did exactly the same. They went out and bought Dave Besant, Andy Thorne. Uh, I think it was John Robertson from Hearts and stuff like that. So they tried to kind of like reinvest it, but then when they'd been relegated and then come back, the, that concept of saying, look, we're not the Newcastle of old was made with that bold statement of sign, you know, of, of bringing back the the old hero, Peter Beardsley, and, and, uh, and bringing in other younger, promising players. 
it, it, it's. I mean, obviously, we're, we're gonna we'll get Aiden now to I'm to name who I'm assuming he'll he'll know like the back of his hand. You know, the the sort of the main one to eleven of this season, but. Obviously, I'm, I mean, I'm sure he's going to chat about you know sort of Les Ferdinand, but certainly the introduction of Ferdinand and players like Ginola as well. You know, I was you know Aiden there. You know, like you said, this is a this this season almost crystallises the the statement of intent of of what Newcastle were about and what they were trying to achieve. Um, but if you can, yeah, you know, please, you know, sort of go through the go through the side then, if you like that that are synonymous with this with this ninety five ninety six season. Yeah, absolutely. Well, starting at the back, um, Shaka Hislop had arrived in, in the summer ahead of the 95-96 season, essentially to try and upgrade what had been a weak spot for the side over the previous couple of years. Um, Pavel Cernicek had been in and out of the, of the team over the, the course of the previous four or five years, I think. Um, other people had come and gone, like, um, I forget his first name, Hooper, who played for... Liverpool reserves at one point and then yeah Mike Cooper that's the one but none of them had convinced uh, but then neither did Shaka Hislop to be to be brutally honest uh, and Hislop and Cernicek share the duties throughout this uh, this key season really um, Hislop primarily at first then he picked up an injury Cernicek came in uh, and and so on and more or less shared the season um, ahead of them there was two very attacking fullbacks, uh, which to current modern eyes would, would seem the norm, I guess. But at the time, it was it was far more attacking than, than, than really was the case in many other teams. So on, on the right, I had Warren Barton, who was another of the arrivals the summer just in advance of this season. Uh, and John Beresford on the left-hand side, uh, who'd been with the club since the promotion year. Uh, both very attacking, as I say, so fitted perfectly into Keegan's plan and, and both had great uh, working relationships with the, the wingers who were in front of them uh, which we'll get to shortly um, in the middle it was generally two out of three uh, of Darren Peacock Steve Howie and Philippe Albert um, Steve Howie was the local boy of course who'd been with, uh, with the club for some time the others coming in uh, to try and improve the side of course um, they were much maligned in the uh, in the Keegan side, given the attacking approach, uh, generally it was assumed that the defence were the, the weak spot and not that great. But when you actually look at the the, um, the numbers over the course of this this season, as much as there were certain games where they ended up letting in a few too many uh, and not going so well, the defensive record was actually quite solid. Over the course of that whole season, they only conceded two more goals than Manchester United did, and this is the defence of Schmeichel, Pallister, and Bruce which was obviously highly celebrated. But uh, Newcastle defence really wasn't actually that much inferior to them in terms of the number of goals conceded. Well, Newcastle obviously spent most of their time attacking, so the ball was at the other end. Um, again, out of those, especially Philippe Albert would love to go forward. He would bring it out of defence many a time. He was an excellent at, at linking up into the midfield in that way. Um, he scored a few tasty goals in his time as well. He was a, a massive favourite. Darren Peacock was probably the only one who had the uh, the sole defensive remit out of out of the whole lot of the of the so-called defence. Uh, in that his focus was primarily on on staying at the back. Uh, the rest of them were were essentially the the back line of the attack, if you want to see it that way. <laughs> Brought in primarily for their skills, bring the ball forward as much as any defensive now. 
ahead of them then once we get into the midfield Robert Lee is probably I would say the key player of the Keegan era he was there almost throughout he joined in the promotion season and he blossomed from from a sort of uh, I don't know I don't want to say journeyman but he was a sort of average player when he was in uh, in Charlton ahead of this uh, and blossomed into an international player not quite ever the number one choice at international level but certainly became a vital player in the in the Keegan time he was he was the hub around which it all revolved in many ways uh, alongside Beardsley in front of him he was a very good player probably uh, no, he, he box to box and he, he'd tip up anywhere he was one of those really invaluable players um, and, and chipping with goals you know he could play on the right hand side of midfield if, if, if needed and uh, but but he got he was he was one of those really there, there was a, a certain amount of players in this Newcastle side that you know as a, as a Liverpool fan and that wasn't an insignificant Liverpool team at the time either that you know you massively coveted and and Robert Lee was probably the 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 biggest one of those you know because he was just that 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 fantastic rare commodity because it was just getting to that point in time where midfielders there, there was no box to box midfielders as such the box to box midfielders were becoming a you know a thing of the past you know you you have your deep lying midfielder you had you know your ball player in the centre and then the one higher up they're all given specific zones you know zone on midfield almost. Uh, and Robert Lee was was one of those that could just cover a lot of ground and very skillful as well. Yeah, and he just oozed class. He, he he just became he just got better and better throughout the whole Keegan time, uh, and he was he was integral to everything that went on. I mean, he's he's, he's one of those that's still he, very much yeah. a hero. He, he was he was massively outdone by by missing out on the the England squad for the uh, the European Championships, which you know going back to Steve Howie, Steve Howie's you know defensive you know uh, qualities, he was actually named in that squad. But he, he picked up an injury yeah. and played no part in the tournament. That's right, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it is remarkable that Robert Lee missed out on that. I think he went to the 98 World Cup, didn't he? But again, didn't yeah. wasn't wasn't actually part of the starting lineup at any point in that, which was a shame because, yes, yeah, he's, he's still very much a hero. Um, other midfielders that were the main parts of the team, Lee Clark probably was the, the most defensive of those. I mean, initially in... in Again, he's a local boy who'd come through the whole RDUS, the Jim Smith era, ahead of that. Um, he was more of an attacking midfielder at that point, but under Keegan, he, he became more of the, the defensive side, which later on in the season, David Batty would come along and replace. Uh, but he did provide a little bit of solidity amidst the, the attack going on all around him. Um, coming to the more attacking players, of course, the, the ones that are best known, I guess. David Gindler, of course, had arrived in the summer of '95. He pushed the quality up to a level it hadn't been at before in any way, shape or form. He, he just took things to a whole new realm. Um, he would blow hot and cold, of course, um, when he was one of a number of mercurial French wingers that, that we've had at Newcastle. If you think of uh, Laurent Robert and Ben Arthur and so on in more recent times. But at their best, all of them, uh, and Ginola undoubtedly probably the, the best exponent of the three, uh, just unplayable, unstoppable when they were really on their game. It didn't happen often enough, perhaps, but but when he did, it, it was astonishing. He could be absolutely supreme. Um, there's, there's a nice tale of when he first arrived and came to training, as well as having uh, cigarettes in the changing room ahead ahead of uh, going out to train. Um, the, the the rest of the squad were 
aiming to test him out, of course, and John Beres would have fired a ball straight at Ginola's midriff, trying to see how he how he control it, controlled it on a dime, turned, played it on. Scott Sellers, who who had been part of the promotion season, turned to, turned to his mate Beresford. Uh, and said, "Oh, that's me screwed, then, isn't it?" And <laughs> Scott Sellers was was not part of the team anymore going forward. Uh, a, a significant upgrade. Um, on on the other wing from Ginola on the left, who who had an excellent playing relationship with Beresford, by the way, they, they they combined absolutely superbly. On the other side was Keith Gillespie, who'd been part of the uh, Andy Cole transfer uh, a couple of years earlier, or a year and a half earlier. Uh, to, to Manchester United, he'd come in the other direction. He was only 21 at the time he, he came to Newcastle, but it gave him a new lease of life. Uh, he, he hadn't really been a, a mainstay of the Manchester United team at all, but coming to Newcastle, he he, he was let off the leash, kind of. He, he was rampant on the right-hand side at times. Uh, less celebrated, I guess, than, than Ginola on the other side, but just a significant... Again, oh, his place would... Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. He, he, he was. He, uh, I, I think it's, it said everything that Ferguson was so reluctant to, to let him go. You know, and it was only the fact that Keegan had made it, you know, uh, an integral stipulation of the cold transfer that, uh, you know, it said everything that, you know, that, that Ferguson wanted Cole that much that he was willing to let Gillespie go. But it was, it was a gamble more for Manchester United than it was for Newcastle. Yeah, very much so. I mean, with, with that transfer, initially it looked that Newcastle had got by far the better end of that deal because uh, Cole struggled at, at first at Manchester United. Obviously, he, he did rather well <laughs> later on, but initially it hadn't looked quite that way and, and Gillespie was flying. Uh, he was another one who ended up drifting out of the side later on in the 96, uh, the early months of 96 when Tino Asprea arrived. Uh, that's something we'll probably come on to later in terms of how the style of play changed. Uh, but he, he did sort of drift out of the side a little bit towards the end of the season. Um, but up front, the, we've already mentioned Peter Beardsley, of course, the, the pivot through which all the attack flowed. Uh, he brought with him a level ex of experience that, that was crucial. I mean, he joined on promotion, as we've already mentioned. He he was uh, he was pivotal to everything that went going forwards. But his uh, his partner up front, Les Ferdinand, he is to this day a huge hero on Tyneside. He only played two seasons at Newcastle in the end, but what a hero he was! He was the striker supreme. He was powerful, pacey. His attitude was un unbeatable. He he really was an icon. He we, we talked about the upgrades of uh, each time a new player arrived. Les Ferdinand was essentially the replacement for Andy Cole. And Cole had left in the January of the year before. Uh, and the final months of that season when Newcastle drifted out to, to sixth, uh, we hadn't really had the same key striker. There'd been Paul Kitson and, uh, and various other players that tried to step up to the plate, but were, really weren't at that level. Keegan, of course, stood on the steps of St. James's and told everyone it was all going to be OK and he had a grand plan. We all believed him, but we didn't know what it would be. That summer, the plan was less Ferdinand and, and that took it to another level again. He's an absolute hero on Tyneside. Every time he's returned uh, in the years since as a player, he's always had a standing ovation. He's, there's a special place for him in uh, Tyneside hearts. Uh, I guess along with Robert Lee, he's one of the most popular and significant players of, of, the, of the era. Uh, I think I think the interesting thing about that that 
whole thing was when Cole was allowed to go to Manchester United, there was that massive fear that Newcastle had just regressed to that selling club, you know, that they'd been in the 1980s. Um, but bringing in Ferdinand and uh, just just blew that idea out of the water within three or four months. Yeah, absolutely. It, it just it it showed that as much as we, we may still sell, it's for a purpose, and that purpose was to improve. I mean, going you could go back further that um, David Kelly, who we mentioned earlier as a as a hero of the survival season in '92, uh, he he was there in the promotion year, but then he. He was uh, phased out after that, and Beardsley came in, and obviously, again, it was a step up. Each each time a new player moved on, they were replaced with someone better, and that just kept the, kept the squad improving and improving. Um, and we've already mentioned um, debut goals, as we did for Keegan. Well, Ferdinand got one of those at the Gallagher end as well, um, echoing Keegan's, and then at the same end of David Kelly's great survival. It was uh, it was a similar type of thing when you get put through, and the great hero scores the goal at the Gallagher end. Just what you need. <laughs> it's, I mean, before we sort of you know before we come on to the sort sort of the key moments then then of this season, you know, Stephen, you know, Aidan's taken us through that team superbly, and you know, and sort of nodded to the fact that. The defence was was arguably better than it was ever given credit for, but you know the way the way Aidan's described it, you know this team, this philosophy, Keegan's philosophy here was was all about attacking free flowing football, wasn't it? It was, but it was, you know, it, it was um, also marked by a few anchors here and there. You know, as as Aidan had said, that uh, that role that Lee Clark was given as as the holding role in the midfield. You know, he had that attacking instinct in him, but he could do the holding role job very, very well, and he did. Um, but then you also had Steve Howie. You know, Steve Howie was a rock at the back, whereas Philip Albert could step forward. You know, so the, that discipline was there, um, but it it was a it was more the attacking side that that, that flowed through. You know. I would say that the goalkeeping situation was just possibly what undid Newcastle in the end. You know, whereas as Manchester United had Schmeichel, if if Newcastle had had that comparable goalkeeper, um, then it, it probably would have gone their way. It, it, I mean, it's obviously you know with, with you, Aidan, there's there must have been so many, so many key moments, so many games, so many highlights, so you know, so much to, you know, to remember. But you know, I mean, they set out in that season like like an absolute house on fire. You know, they just they left everybody standing in those first sort of first quarter, first quarter of the season. They were just you know untouchable, unplayable, and you know, and almost out of sight before the season had even really got going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they won nine out of the first 10, 11 out of the first 13. Um, the only aberrations to that was the defeat at Southampton, which always seems a bit too far away from Newcastle to, you know, <laughs> on, on travel to be far. bothered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a draw at Spurs. But other than that, as you say, they, they, they flew out of the blocks. Um, the, the new players hit the ground running as well. I mean, Ferdinand, as we mentioned, scored on his debut. Ginola, a couple of games later... Uh, still in August, I think he, he made his first significant mark on, on the season, running rings around the, uh, the Middlesbrough fullback Neil Cox, who I think is still his legs are still tangled <laughs> up from, from that. I, I think um, 
and that was the first example of what I still see as the um, the defining image of, of this era, which is a magnificent pinpoint cross from Ginola being fired in, Ferdinand towering above the the opposition defence to power a header into the into the net. That for me is the defining goal and defining image of this era, and that was the the first example of that came in in an August victory over Middlesbrough uh, that that was part of this initial run. Um, they probably didn't have a match against one of the more significant rivals, I guess, until November time. But even when they did, which was against Liverpool and Blackburn, who, of course, were the reigning champions at the time, they won both of those two uh, within four days of each other. In fact, their 2-1 win over Liverpool and a 1-0 win over Blackburn. This was also around the time where they were having a decent run in the, the League Cup, which saw an away win over Liverpool. Uh, Steve Watson player we haven't mentioned yet, but another local lad, he was more of a bit part in the, in this team, scoring with a, a delightful lob, I think, over David James uh, to secure that win. Yeah, if only we'd swap that with another game later in the year, that would have been... <laughs> we'll come on to that one. <laughs> but yes, the, those first few months of the season were all going very, very well. And this, of course, led to the, the big lead come uh, Christmas, New Year time. Yeah, Before Man United really got going. Yeah, that, I mean, I was at that uh, that game at St James Park, the the two one, and, uh, and Liverpool played quite well that day. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Newcastle went 15 points clear at the top of the table that day. Um, you could be wrong looking back, but I'm I'm pretty positive that whether it was a case of Man United playing the next day or something like that. But uh, that was just how incessant Newcastle were. You know, in, as the introduction to that season, to be so far ahead, just three months into the you know into the season, people people had crowned them champions already. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's but it, it's not it's not I suppose it's not really a tale of two halves this season, but it's it it certainly seems to be that you know there is there are definitive points with this season, and certainly you know we talked we started right at the beginning where you know every. Everybody, they were everybody's second team, and you know everybody can recall moments from this particular season. Um, and you know we've talked about the, the the Liverpool victory in the in the first half, but I suppose we've got to at some point, and, I, and I'm really sorry, Aidan, but we've got to come to the the Anfield game. And obviously, I can't help that Stephen's the co-host. There's nothing I can do about that. But um, were you at that one as well, Stephen? I was. I was. Okay. It was um, as close to a. I mean. The, there's two games that Liverpool played against Newcastle that have have been as close to European nights as as you're likely to get in a domestic game of football with, without a European prize on the on the on the board. And that was one of them. The other one was an FA Cup game in the in the in '84 when Keegan was still playing for them, a Friday night game. Um, and yet the the atmosphere was just electric. The ground shook. You know, the 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 cop bounced. You know, because it you know, that 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 bounceable kind of concrete, and uh, it was it was an absolutely earth shaking game. Um, I mean, from your perspective, Aidan. I mean, obviously for Stephen, it, it worked out pretty well. Um, but but <laughs> but from but from your perspective, you know that that particular game. Well, it was, I mean, first of all, it, it was an astonishing game and the lead changed hands repeatedly. There were three goals, I think, in the first 15 minutes or so. Was it Fowler giving Liverpool the lead? And then, yeah, 
that that first goal, I was about two or three minutes in. Yeah, and, and then just Fernand and Ginola yeah. scored soon after, and it was all kicking off from there. It was it was phenomenal, wasn't it? And the pace of the whole thing, the to and fro. I mean, it was never going to be a low score after after that opening, <laughs> was it? Nope. it no, and uh, I mean Espria, and and was I loved Espria, absolutely loved him, and uh, yeah, he he just ran us ran us ragged last night. It, it was it was akin to kind of like. Thomas Hearns and, and Marvin Hagler stood in the middle of the ring just playing <laughs> punches. Well, you know, it, it was it was who would land the last punch, and that was basically the way that football match went. It was. I mean, Asprey's goal was it was a beautiful one as well. Sort of it was outside that, of the booth, arch, arch, arch 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 it was it was wonderful. Yeah, the advancing James, and it was you know if if you can have such a concept as the favourite goal that your team's ever conceded. <laughs> that's, that's way up there for me. You know, in aesthetic terms, that is way up there for me. Um, um, the, the Liverpool goals that day were definitely not the favourite ones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking of, talking of um, non-favourite goals, I suppose, you know, people talk about the 4-3 as, as being one of the definitive moments, but obviously the 1-0 the defeat to Manchester United and arguably one of the... I can still remember where I was when I watched this game. Um... And, and the performance of Peach Michael um, that night at St James's Park. I mean, in terms of, from a personal point of view, Aidan, was it the was it the Manchester United defeat or the Liverpool defeat that that maybe sort of saw that the dream maybe die away a little bit, or was was there still was there still sort of hope there despite despite those two games? At the time, there was still definitely hope in spite of both of those. Looking back now, the Man United defeat was the key one, more so than the Liverpool one. Um, As you say, that game, Newcastle, the first half, absolutely battered than they did. Everything possible, bar score. Schmeichel was inspired uh, for Man United, sadly. Um, The one time he was beaten by a Philippe Albert free kick, it, it came back off the bar. Um, quite how we weren't in front at the break there, I will never know. It was it was the most one-sided uh, game between the two top teams at the time, as you could possibly ever imagine. But in the second half, of course, it went slightly differently. A fluky scuffed shot from Cantona found its way, bounced its way over Sunchek's <laughs> flailing arms and, and into the net. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that just knocked the stuffing out of Newcastle at the time uh, in, in that particular game, and they weren't able to respond. Um, the, they still thought that Newcastle could win the league from there. They, they, they were still in the lead after that match. They were, the lead was down to one point, but they were still on top. Um, that was about a month before the, the Liverpool game. But the Man United one had come in a string of, of difficult games. They'd lost at West Ham come back to get a, a very late draw at Man City. Then came the, the Man United loss. Soon after that, of course, when we're talking about the, the Liverpool game, the, that had come off the back of a 2-0 defeat at Arsenal as well. This is all in the run where things were were falling apart somewhat. And the Liverpool game, I guess, symbolises it the most. But in terms of the most significant looking back, I, I, I think it's the Man United one. But had that one gone differently, even if all the other defeats had happened, it would have still been okay. It might, it might have just set a tone for the rest of the run, but that was that was a torrid run. They had kind of like mid mid to late February to to early April. I think they had like an, an eight game run where they they only won two, 
but within that run, you know, there was a trip to West Ham, which is never, never all that easy. I, I, I think I think for years on end, Newcastle struggled with trips to West Ham. Um, you know, the, the, that three-all draw against Man City, the defeat against Man United. You know, there the was not just the loss at Anfield, but Highbury prior to that. You know, they, they went to the defending champions Blackburn. I remember that Blackburn game? It might be the Easter weekend, and. And, and again, it was another game that Newcastle played very, very well in, but lost. Yeah. And then the, the, the fella who got the winning goal for Blackburn, was it, was it Fenton, Graham Fenton? Yes, <laughs> and, yes. And, and every, and every Newcastle never... fan knows his name. I've got it wrong. Was, was, was he kind of like a, a northeast lad as well? He's from Whitley Bay, which Whitley is just Bay, on the coast yeah. from Newcastle. I remember yes. being some kind of yeah, local story behind it and... You know, he, he was a talented player, but I don't think he really did anything else in his career. Of, of not no, at all. And, and that, that defeat at Blackburn came, that was five days after the Liverpool game. So exactly. obviously the wins yeah, were, uh, were raw. Yeah, and I, no, I think I think that, that was the one that was, you know, the the, the serious killer blow at the end. Because, I mean, That's right. down to that last final run, you know, Newcastle were beaten in the last five games, but by then they'd handed the advantage to Manchester United. And as we always know, if you if if you're not the team in 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 possession of the the leadership, you, your shoulders ease a little bit. It's easier to chase than be chased in a way. It, it's I mean it's funny, isn't it? I mean, so just sometimes you, you look back on a season and and you can't believe it. Almost feels like there's about three seasons all all sort of fitted into to one season and and that. that even the, the second half, that that title running, ju- it just seems so, so epic, and and then that so much was happening. And you know, we've talked about these games. We've talked about um, Fenton, Cantona, Schmeichel, Anfield, and and yet, you know, we've we've still not even touched on obviously the 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 infamous sort of rant that the post game rant of of Keegan, and it's you know, the ju- there just seemed to be so much happening. In, in that particular running that, that, you know, for as long as I can remember, there's not been a, a running so incident-packed and so full of memorable moments, if you like. But in terms of the the, the Keegan meltdown, I'm not sure it was a meltdown. I think the, the guy's incredibly passionate and and I, I for one, like like to see people, you know, tell it how it is and, you know, and call it how it is and that's how he felt. Um, as a Newcastle fan, um, Aidan, what, what was your perspective on, on that interview? Uh, well, it was it was it was shocking, of course, uh, in that it's not what you normally hear from managers in post-match interviews. But but equally, the, the general feeling was that it's like, yeah, absolutely. You tell him how it is. This is the, this is exactly right. How dare Ferguson be questioning uh, the way other teams will play uh, and that they may want Newcastle to win rather than Man United? You know, let's tell him how it is and. Keegan, as you say, always wore his heart on his sleeve. He was never going to hold back. But um, from from what I've read about this incident, he was he was perfectly calm when he went off to the interview. I don't think it was that he was angry and fired up uh, by by the way things had gone. I mean, Newcastle had won that game at Leeds, which is the beginning of the final week of the season. Uh, that that uh, the Ferguson I thought Leeds may not try quite as hard and they certainly did it was only a 1-0 win and it, it was hard, far from comfortable but uh, Keegan went off for the interview in, in great spirits by all accounts he, he didn't he wasn't angry he was quite jovial but then he, he obviously something something stirred the emotions and he just went off on one um, 
It, it was strange to hear. There's, there's no getting away from that. But I, but I, I don't think that, that anyone felt less of him because of it. Nobody initially thought, oh, he's fallen for the mind games. Um, although that's obviously the, the narrative that's come out since with, with Newcastle not quite seeing it through. Um, I know that the players themselves, to use a to use a phrase, loved it. Uh, they, they quite enjoyed hearing their manager go on that way about their rival um, ahead of their, their next game that week, which was away at Nottingham Forest in the in the hotel prior to uh, uh, in, in the lunch prior to that evening's game. The the ice was broken on this subject, which hadn't really been brought up with Keegan, where David Batty was in in the uh, in the queue for the food with him, and he said, "Well, Gaffer, I would love it, love it if you got me a piece of bacon." <laughs> everyone just fell about laughing, of course, and it, it broke the ice. But it, it kind of showed that within the squad itself, they they didn't feel that anything uh, anything bad and necessarily happened with this rant as much as in the media it became obviously a big thing and. and Possibly the pressure piled on from that source rather than internally. But as, as fans, we, we quite enjoyed our manager standing up for the team in that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I say, I, I, you know, I think it's great. I think, I think he was much maligned for it. Like you say, in, in the media, you know, sort of immediately following it. And like you say, the mind games and was he cracking so on. For me, he just looked like a bloke who was telling how it is. And you can hear Sunday league managers shouting that across pitches pretty much every weekend, wherever you go. Um, so... Obviously, we know. Unfortunately, Aidan, we know how. There's no surprise here. You know, we, we know how that how the season finishes, how the season ends up. Um, so, obviously, this you know this is your side. You know, it's your iconic side. It's it's all these great memories and traumatic memories, I suppose, as well, all wrapped up into one season. But sort of following following the end of this season, then how how did Newcastle progress, kick on? You know, develop or was this was this the pinnacle? You know, was this the very the very peak? Looking back, it was the very peak, but at the time, nobody thought that. Um, within a month or so of the season ending, as much as it it, it ended in a traumatic uh, and, from our point of view, tragic way, within a month or so, we'd broken the world record transfer and signed Alan Shearer, and suddenly everything was on the crest of a wave again. And you kind of think, well, this this roller coaster is just carrying on for another another loop the loop we're going, we're going to go on another great ride here and uh, and the following season began again in fine style newcastle not quite to the the same extent as the as the previous season had but they they've still top of the league in the autumn still going nicely uh but sadly of course it, it wasn't to last i mean come that january uh, early 1997 keegan was gone uh, and with it everything changed again initially with Kenny Dalglish arriving, the thoughts were that that might add the slight degree of pragmatism that would that would uh, make Newcastle what they weren't under Keegan. You know, given the the slight uh, more more sensible approach, I guess, uh, to to rein in the the swashbuckling attack. Uh, and initially, they did progress under Dalglish. They they were fourth or fifth, I think, when Keegan left, and they finished up second that season. Although. This was some distance behind the, the winners that year, but still managed to, to claw their way past everyone else to be second again. But things from there rapidly deteriorated. I think the following season, it was mid-table. Ferdinand was sold um, against his wishes, really, but um, he, he was sold on to Tottenham, and then the very next day, Shearer got a serious injury, and then 
suddenly you're without your two main strikers who you'd uh, you'd had great great games with and great success with the previous year, and everything just drifted off from there. And the difference with all the players that that signed in that era, they were significantly worse than the ones they were replacing, rather than in the early Keegan years, where as we say, the each new signing was better than what had gone before. Here we were signing average players. That there was the dad's army of. Uh, Stuart Pearce, Ian Rush, and, and John Barnes, who were just not equipped at that level anymore. Uh, but Keegan, uh, sorry, Dalglish, uh, brought them in and, and relied on them a little bit, and it, it, it just didn't work out, and, and things just gradually drifted off from there. It, it, it's funny, isn't it, Stephen? I, th- I think, you know, I think the, you know, like we say, the, the sort of almost decline into the third division followed by this, this rapid rise under Keegan, this exciting brand of football, and then you know this this spike in this you know fantastic memorable memorable season that we've been talking about and then it it goes almost just as quickly it almost makes this this side this season even more memorable um you know because it was such a a peak within a rapid rise and a rapid decline oh it was the classic it was it was the classic rise to prominence and and drift away um <clears throat> anyway it was it was a throwback you know, because watching Liverpool do so well over so many years, you always had these. There was always a challenger. There was always a team that that rose and then drifted away. Be that a Nottingham Forest or a Leeds United or a Derby County or an Aston Villa, Everton, Arsenal. It happened over and over again. And now it was Manchester United's turn to dominate, and they'd had Blackburn come at them. Now it was Newcastle. And, and it was shaping up to be the same type of thing. Arsenal would soon follow, but then the whole landscape would change uh, across football. But yeah, this 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 Newcastle to to rise so sharply from such a low, and then to to kind of drift back down a little bit, and then find a plateau that was you know maybe maybe halfway between the two, higher than that maybe. But um, yeah, it was just it, it was just so stark in, in the way that it. It, it it came forward and then and then and then just petered away, and and I think Keegan Keegan left as as surprisingly as as he arrived. You know, he 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 left in the same spirit almost as as he arrived. It, I mean. You know, before but you know, before we finish, unfortunately, ta- you know, times against it. I knew, I knew this is this is how this would go. We'd get so <laughs> so absorbed in it, and which is great, and is exactly how I wanted it to be. Um, I'm going to ask you both um, in a second for for one um, single standout memory um, from this side. But but before I do that, um, Aidan, just just sort of you know, finally, what do you think is the is the legacy? of this particular side? I think the legacy is that it's it's a team that's remembered more than the team that won. Uh, there's echoes there of the Dutch of 74 and, and Hungary of, of the 50s in that the, the, the thing that people remember the most is the team that gave everyone so much joy but ultimately fell short. But they're the ones who live in everyone's memory. It was it was a failure, but it was it was a beautiful one, of course. It was a sporting tragedy for, for those of us of a Newcastle persuasion but the fact that it's endured everyone has fond memories and not just Newcastle fans as you say fans from almost every club obviously Sunderland accepted <laughs> really enjoyed Newcastle I, I wouldn't say everybody did but you know it, it was it was a wider perception that they were a second favorite team of many 
they, they the football they produced was was of a, a sort of pure attacking form. It, it was it was beautiful. It was it was the way that every football fan football fan might dream their team would play in an ideal world. It, it sort of opened our eyes to how football could be, and that's what Keegan did for for us as Newcastle fans and. and and showed the rest of the league. The sad thing is, of course, that it didn't bring success to show that that style of play and that approach could actually take you all the way to the heights, because that may have may have led to to other teams adopting a more stylish attacking approach. Perhaps I, I don't know whether it would, but that's that's the 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 tragedy of it, I guess. But but the the beauty is that they're revered, they're they're remembered, and they're idolised in spite of not winning. And they—they—they kept close to the heart, even though they, they ultimately were flawed. What a, what a what a brilliant! And that's why you came on first, Aiden. Um, <laughs> so, Stephen, then um, before I let Aiden have the final word for for you, uh, a standout moment from from this side. Yeah, I think Aiden's absolutely nailed it. There, it, it is that essence of of what might have been, and uh, yeah, that that that. Really, it's like they, they hang around like a speck to those those football clubs, those those teams, those nations that come so close to glory and 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 played the game so well and and so beautifully. You know, if you if you're looking for kind of like individual games, there's so many that they played that season. And uh, but those memorable ones tend to be the ones that they they just fell short of. You know that that domination against Manchester United, the most one-sided one-nil defeat, I think has ever been. You know the insanity of of of, of the four-three, and uh, and that two-one at Blackburn, where the the two goals came so late. You know they were one-nil up with about five minutes to go, only for it to drift away from them. Uh, you know, and the fact that in each of those games, they they played football so beautifully and so flowing, and. Uh, and yeah, I think it was just beyond that. It's the it's the, just the sheer movement and enjoyment of, of which they played their football across the board. Um, that that's a lot of moments. <laughs> um, <laughs> for, for, for you, Aiden, uh, as obviously as, as the fan and the fact that this is you know this is your side, um, standout moment for you. Well, just to add to Steve's point initially. Before I get to the stand-up moment, if I can, yeah, of course. Uh, the, the enjoyment is—it wasn't just in playing. This was training too. They—they they, they basically just had a ball in training the whole time. It, it was fairly unstructured, as you probably imagine, <laughs> under a Keegan side. It was all just for the sheer fun of it all. Everyone had a great time, uh, and this benefited them in, in their playing style. In that—that that enjoyment came through there as well in the way they expressed themselves. But for my most iconic memory uh, in a much more positive way. I don't want my iconic memories to be the way it all went sour. <laughs> the, the enduring image for me, as I mentioned earlier, was a, a powerful Ferdinand header from a cross. It probably didn't happen as many times as it, it feels like it did in my mind, but that <laughs> is the enduring image of, of that successful full era. Um, you can add in the likes of Lee and Beardsley and so on, uh, with silky play, uh, cutting teams apart and scything through. But it's, it's still the, 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 the image that I see in my mind's eye when I think of this team. It is it's just a, a beautiful cross from the left by Jim and powered home by Ferdinand. <laughs> 
Brilliant. What a, what a, what a fantastic image uh, to finish with. Um, um, Aidan, um, all I can say is thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing what was quite painful at times. <laughs> a little bit like therapy. Um, but certainly thank you for, you know, for volunteering to go first and, and you know, for, you know, reliving what was essentially a wonderful season um, by a wonderful um, football inside. So thank you very much for that. No, it's been an absolute blast. I've loved every minute of it. It's great. Thanks. Fantastic. No, absolutely no problem at all. Stephen, um, a good start, yeah. Oh, brilliant! It was. It was. It was. It was as good as we could have. We could have hoped. There, it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, such a team, you know, and such a universally loved team to start on. Um, yeah, and, and Aiden's been fantastic there. Cheers, Aiden. No worries, mate. It's been great. Thanks. Okay, so um, all that's left is for me to to thank the listeners and to tease a little bit that um, the next episode we're going to travel to the continent to discuss arguably um, one of the greatest ever um, club sides. So thank you very much for joining us. This is the Lob Podcast. This was episode one of my side. Thank you and goodbye. Many thanks for joining us today on the Lob at these Football Times production. For more of our content, check out our award-winning print magazine featuring some of the game's foremost writers, artists and photographers exploring areas of the game rarely covered in high-end print. For now, we look forward to you joining us again soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.